This is episode number 824, part two, with New York Times bestselling author, Sam Harris. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. My friend, thank you for being here. And if you listen to part one, then you are excited about this episode because, man, he he went off. Sam went off on a lot of different things, talking about eliminating worry, how people feel like passengers in their own bodies, and how life is not about seeking happiness. He also spoke about when he feels the most loved, sympathetic joy, and how that gives us more reasons to be happy. Sam talked about his mother and the lessons he learned from her and how death has influenced how he lives his life today. In this episode, we cover the importance of identifying when you're lost in thought and when you're present. So how do we identify that? The truth of emptiness and how it can free you from your experiences. How recognizing consciousness is the antidote to always seeking satisfaction, real love as the antithesis of envy and how feeling sympathetic joy for others can bring happiness and the benefit of facing death as a reality. I've been talking about this more. Facing your own death can actually bring you more joy. Very excited about this. Again, if this is your first time being here and you don't know who Sam Harris is, he's a New York Times bestselling author, five-time New York Times bestselling author. He's been featured all over the place in topics including neuroscience, moral philosophy, religion, meditation practice, Human Violence and Rationality. His work has been published in 20 different languages, been discussed in New York Times, Time, Rolling Stone, all over the world. He's studied and practiced meditation for more than 30 years with many Tibetan, Indian, Burmese, and Western meditation experts, and he's created the Waking Up course for anyone who wants to learn to meditate in a modern scientific context. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Whether you're searching for a home to buy or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent, all in the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. They know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Okay, quick math. The less your business depends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep, obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Weeks, head to netsuite.com slash greatness. Netsuite.com slash greatness. Again, head to netsuite.com slash greatness. How do we move on from the story or how do you do it? Do you live with a, a lot of worry each day? Or are you so good now at just saying this doesn't matter, you know, this is in the past, or I'm I'm concerned about something that's not gonna happen potentially in the future. So let me get back to present. 
Like, how do you yeah. not worry? Well, so I mean, everything for me, sort of at my level of practice, and I've done a lot of meditation practice, but you know, there's there's apparently much more to do in my case. <laughs> Because um, you still worry. There's no emotion that I don't experience, right? So I can I can experience you know intense anger, intense sadness, mm-hmm. depression, worry, all of it. And the difference for me, and this is something that that I wouldn't have, but for the fact that I've, I've really learned to to practice mindfulness. The difference is when my suffering becomes at all intense, it functions as a kind of mindfulness alarm. Right, and so like the the truly kind of mediocre path for me is to be within the range of sort of normal annoyance and normal desire, <laughs> mid level suffering. Yeah, where the alarm's not going off, right. and I'm just a normal jerk, you know, within that <laughs> within those bounds, yeah. right? Like you know, a little anxious here and there. Yeah. Yeah. So I got, I go to the dry cleaner and and discover that they you know destroyed my suit. Right. It's like so it's like. This, this, in the scheme of things, this does not matter at all, right? But, but, but you're when, frustrated. You're yeah, annoying. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. what, what, what do you do? <laughs> you know, so it's like attention is captured, and when attention is captured by that, you know, I'm the same guy I always was. Right, right. right. Um, <laughs> you're always a jerk? Yeah, well, well just like whatever. It's like I, or, or attention can be captured pleasantly by something right, right, that you're right. like, oh, God, I mean, this is the best bagel I've ever had, right? So I'm like, I'm just going for the food, and there's no perspective. You know, it's like I'm not, I'm not consciousness is trimmed down to just the the pleasure or pain of that experience for that moment, right? And that all of those moments for me have the character of being, uh, they really are, are deeply analogous to being asleep and dreaming and not knowing that you're dreaming, mm. right? So the reality is you're in your bed, you know, prone or, or supine, or, you know, you're, you're just, you're in a situation that's completely unlike the situation you think you're in. And you think you're on a beach, you know, talking to somebody or, you know, arguing with somebody. You showed up at a conference and, you you know, you, you didn't have your pants, right. you know, whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> and, um, you know, you're relating to people who don't exist. And, I mean, just, I mean, we're psychotic when we're dreaming. Right. We're completely confused, right, unless it's a lucid dream, right, which is its own interesting yeah. experience. But assuming your dreams are not lucid, you are completely unaware of a larger, con- the, the mm-hmm. true larger context to your experience. Yeah. And, and you're merely a hostage to whatever is playing out in that dream, yeah. right? You know, so, and, that, and that most of experience that is mediated by thought, apart from mindfulness, most experience has that character. So for me, once you turn up the dial on intense, the intensity of the experience, it's your alarm, that, yeah. that, then I begin. Then, then something else comes online for me more reliably, and then you can, you know, if you really know how to meditate, you can break the spell decisively in an instant. Yeah. You know, and and in that instant, you have woken up. I mean, you're no longer in bed asleep, right? So I can do that. I mean, there's sort of two. Le- I mean, I guess there are two landmarks. I would suggest to notice. I mean, if, if somebody's practicing meditation and they're, and they're really getting into it, I would say that there are kind of two points that I, I, would, I would flag as points of real durable progress. The first is just to notice the difference between being lost in thought and clearly paying attention to experience, you know, prior to thought, mm-hmm. prior to concepts. That's sort of small and mindfulness that, that people learn, you know, once they, they start a practice. And that has the consequences of if you do that enough, if you keep if you keep punctuating your ordinary experience with that, just non-judgmental, non-reactive acceptance of what the present moment is, right? So you feel anxiety, you feel irritation, you become mindful, you just become interested in that feeling, in the in just the, the neurophysiology of it, the sensation of it. You get out of your thinking about all the reasons why you should feel anxious or you should mm-hmm. you should feel irritated. You just become merely present with the experience, and then you notice this kind of half-life, it just dissipates, right? And there's a certain kind of freedom in that. There's another point, which, you know, in my, in my meditation app, I spent a lot of time trying to push people toward, you know, earlier than is, is conventional. There's another point where you, can, you realize that the, the feeling of self, the, the feeling that there's a subject in the center of experience is an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually not there. If you look, you can look for it deliberately enough. That we are an illusion. Yeah, it's not, it's not that your body is an illusion. It's not that people are illusions, but the, the sense that you have that you 
or a subject in your head rocking riding around in the body like that you're that they're you're behind your face in this moment like like you and I are talking I'm looking at you the normal the, the default situation is for you to feel implicated by my gaze like I'm I'm look I'm looking at something. Like right. you're, you're on the other side of my gaze. Right. right? I mean, my mind is, or my my consciousness, well, whatever. or yeah. This is you. It's like like I like you're you. There's something. You know, if, if you say something and I'm and I, you know, get a weird expression on my face, like I don't believe you or whatever. You you can can read that back. It, it falls back to you. It's like it points back to you. Like if I if I point at you. It feels like I'm pointing at something. I mean, this feels rude. This feels you know, this is normally a rude gesture, right? right? So it's like you feel like 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 you're, you're over there. Yeah, you're yeah. behind your face, right? Uh, you know, that's what we call I. I mean, that's, that's that the, mm. the personal pronoun pronoun for most people refers to the feel that feeling of being in the head. It doesn't refer to the whole body. You know, it doesn't refer to because people don't feel identical to their whole bodies. They feel like passengers mm, in their mm. bodies. They feel like subjects. They feel mm. like the, the center of experience. And I mean, the real goal of meditation is to recognize that that is an illusory position. That's actually not your position. There really is just experience. There's, there's just consciousness and its contents and there's no center to it. So at a certain point, mindfulness can become the experience of just cutting through that illusion, right? So you're not, it's not that you're having to be strategically mindful of anxiety or anything else that you may notice that you, you want to have dissipate. You suddenly recognize that there's just no center yeah. to experience. And then, then your meditation practice becomes recognizing that in each moment. And mm-hmm. that has, the, that has the, the consequence of just, I mean, that, that's synonymous with not being lost in thought in that moment. It's synonymous with not giving any more energy, therefore, to this reaction you're having. It's synonymous with no resistance to whatever is appearing, right? So, you, so you're actually free even before the physiology of the negative state dissipates. So, I mean, let's say you're, you're angry, you're feeling road rage, you recognize there's no center. Your, your freedom in that moment isn't even contingent upon the anger going away. It's like the, because anger at that moment is no longer anger. Anger is just it's just tension. Sure. You know, it's just tension in your face. You know, like you, you could have tension in your face because of you had some dental procedure, right? But it's like like it, it, it literally it just completely disconnects the, the sense of your own well being and expansiveness because mm-hmm. again the center has dropped out. There's just consciousness and its yeah. contents, right? And it do, it doesn't actually and and. So this is, again, this can sound paradoxical, but then from that point of view, you know, the kind of experience I had on MDMA doesn't even improve one situation. Then, because when there's just consciousness without a center, on some level there's no, I mean, this is the, the, the truth here that, that I'm alluding to, I mean, that the, the jargon in Buddhism is, is this, the truth of emptiness, right? Sure. There's just, there isn't, there's nothing... There is no thing, right? Everything, everything is just. I mean, so to take to take an analogy of uh, that works for me. Have you ever gone to a restaurant where you have there's there's one wall that is a, a like a kind of perfect and perfectly clean floor to ceiling mirror, and for most of the meal, you're, you've been assuming that the restaurant is twice the size Big, that it yeah. actually is, right? So you're like there's a bunch of people over there that you just thought were people, but you know at, at some point in the meal you recognize oh, it's just half the size, yeah. right? And that's just glass and just a wall of light right it's an illusion. Yeah, yeah yeah and so that transition where you like like if someone just walks up and puts their hand on the glass and in that moment all the stuff you thought was happening there you, someone could have been having an argument right or like someone could have, mm-hmm. you, someone could physically assault someone there now forget it this is where the analogy breaks down because you know there's something happening in the real world matter, but yeah. but what happens when you touch the mirror and equalize all of that as just a, a display of light, you, on some level, everything has become equalized. The, the, you know, the ugly things are the same as the beautiful things, right? There's just not, it's, it's, just, it's just light, yeah. you know? And that's a good analogy for the freedom you can experience when, there's, when the illusoriness of the self drops out of consciousness. It's like, for, for that moment, and it might only be, a moment. I mean, so I mean, the the course of practice. Once you're able to practice in that way, it's really just about punctuating your life with 
with brief moments of that, you know, like, you know, a hundred moments like that yeah. over the course of a day or an hour, right? It's not about, at least not, you know, anytime soon for most of us, it's not about spending an hour in that state, right? Because, But being able to punctuate life with, with that insight, it really does change the game because then in each one of those moments, you realize you're... You're not, life isn't about seeking to become happy, right? It's not like you, wow. you can only be happy. You can only, you, you can only be free in this moment. It's only ever this moment. Now. Now. Not so, seeking for the future. What you have is this moment and then your thoughts about the past and the future. That's, that's always been true and that will always be true for as long as you have any experience at all. So, so it's, you're either looking over the shoulder of this moment for what's coming, you know, worrying about it or, or greedily, you know, kind of reaching out to the thing you want. So much of life, 99.9% of life for most of us is seeking certain experiences and getting them and feeling kind of the briefest moment of gratification. They're like we, we, we unite with the object of desire for barely, yeah. barely a second. Then... Then we're on to the next thing, or then we're even, I mean, even the thing we desired, if it persisted longer, would become undesirable. I mean, just imagine, like, like you know, you're going for the bowl of ice cream, you're, you're, you're getting sort of the peak taste of it. Imagine if that taste never went away, right? Like, that wouldn't, that's the pleasure, you know, that's not the pleasure you want, and... That would be intolerable. I mean, you, you'd, you'd go to a, a doctor's. Like, I, I had a bowl of chocolate ice cream last week, and oh, I, can't I, get this, I can't get this taste of chocolate <laughs> out of my mouth. Right? I mean, so what, what happens is that you, you take a bite of ice cream that you thought you wanted more than anything in that moment, but actually it's a little too much, and then you, you reach for a glass of water, and you wash it out at a certain point. Right? Like, it's, like it's right. not um, – on some level, all of these, uh, these things we want are a mirage. Mm. Right, you know, you get, you know, what if it's like, like you, you wanted a new watch, and you like you want you want to be associated with this object, and you went shopping for it, and you finally got it's like, this is exactly how I wanted it to look on my wrist, and boy, am I happy with this. And then like you have these brief moments of interaction with it, but when you actually drill down on what the experience is like, I mean, the experience of being satisfied with with some something in sensory space. It is kind of paradoxical and yeah. and insubstantial. And the thing we actually want is a good enough excuse to totally relax into the present, like to 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 to, mm. to fulfill the desire, so that we're no we're no longer feel Anxious. desire. Yeah, interesting. You want to be free of desire, right? Mm. You want to be free of all of your problems. You know, you want your to do list to be all checked off and then empty and. And then, and those become peak moments, right? So like, but the, the problem is we associate the experience of completely dr- giving up the war and being completely satisfied in the present. We, the, the, the brief moments we touch that, you know, and, and you know, in positive psychology, many of these, you know, states are, are called flow states. Those brief moments where we're just, we're not worried about anything, right? We associate that with some enormous effort we made to get here, right? And yet, that is in fact the, the way consciousness already is, if we can just pay attention to it. Mm. And that's why meditation becomes a kind of the ultimate hack of uh, in, in in how one can pursue one's well-being, because it's just it's just it's just true that that, that consciousness is that way. And yet we're spending all of our time seeking to have a good enough reason to realize that. Mm. It's like if I, if I could just win the Nobel Prize, I'd feel good enough about myself uh, that I wouldn't feel like I would have to you know, do anything. Just stop you know, everything just, else. Just, you know, I, this, there would be no but then you egocentric, feel like, right. you know, grandiosity program that I would need to run because I'd have a Nobel Prize. But, the, but the, then you'd be like, well, what's next? And how do I stay relevant? And, and, that's exactly what happens to everyone who wins the Nobel Prize. What, what happens is... I get depressed. So, someone says, what are you going to do next, right? And, and you're like, I just won the Nobel Prize. Yeah, what yeah, else can I do? And, it, so, so, and the half-life of those, those peak experiences wow. is incre- incredibly short. You know, it's... it's it's in the, in the best case, it's it's days, right? But in yeah. reality, it's you know it's 
uh, it's unwinding you know, over the course of, of minutes. I remember my whole childhood, I wanted to be an all-American athlete. It was right. like all I obsessed about. I cared about it deeply. I would sacrifice my life. I never had a sip of alcohol in right. high school or college because I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be an all-American athlete. Right. Was it football or? Football, yeah. yeah. I didn't go partying. I didn't go do anything. Right. I was like, I'm not going to date girls. Whatever it takes, I will train in the morning, the afternoon, no sugar, right. anything. Yeah. And I remember I did it in football and decathlon, but the first time it happened was in the decathlon. And I remember it was down to the last event in the decathlon. It's a two-day event, 10 events. I knew exactly who I needed to beat in this 1,500-mile, 1,500 race to get the eighth place. And eighth place was the cutoff Uh for the All-America. So I was like, okay, it comes down to this event, and I just got to do something I've never done before to make it happen. All my life comes down to this moment, right? 22 years of existence, dreams, dedication, commitment, everything. And I go out and I run the race of my life. I beat this guy by like a couple of seconds and it was so close to see how many seconds I needed to beat him. And they call my name as the the eighth place. Mm -hmm. So I get the All-American, I get the trophy, I stand up on the thing in front of the whole stadium. And I'm excited for literally maybe seven minutes, maybe 10 minutes. And then I was mad the whole dinner. Uh I'm sitting there with my family, my parents are there, my teammates, everyone's celebrating me and I'm angry. I don't wanna talk to anyone. And I didn't understand why. And I think it was because I was so obsessed of reaching this moment that I was like, I don't feel like it's good enough for me. I only got eighth place all over right. here. I yeah. didn't get number yeah. one, you know. Yeah. What am I going to do now? You, you move the goalpost, yeah. Yeah, and I was just like, well, what now? Like, I'm done with school. Now what do I do? Right. I've been chasing this thing for so long. What do I do now? Yeah. So how all, we, all the drugs and alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything I gave up right. for this. Yeah. I was like, so how do we stay satisfied in an unsatisfied world? Well, that, I mean, that's the the false premise. I mean, this is why this is again. To, uh, you know, I don't I don't consider myself a Buddhist, and you know, in my meditation app, I'm not teaching Buddhism. But it's true that Buddhism has such a good handle on this that. It- One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So listen, we all know life is full of yada yada, like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print. And I know you've dealt with yada yada before, like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all. Or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else. And yes, it is possible to outsmart yada yada, like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. In person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's it's easy to default to Buddhist language. So it's often said that, you know, the Buddha talked about life being suffering. And that's actually a mistranslation of what, of the original Pali. The, the, The term is dukkha. And the better translation is 
unsatisfying or unsatisfactory. And so not life is suffering, life is unsatisfactory. Yeah, yeah. So and it's unsatisfactory because the core reason is that whatever arises having arisen will of necessity pass away. Every, every, everything that is conditioned, every, you, have, you bring conditions together, uh, mental and physical conditions, and whatever has been, has been born of that assembly is impermanent, right? So, you, you, so, so the, to take your experience, you can only stand on that podium for so long, right? right? You know, a at, at a certain point, everyone who's who's been clapping will stop clapping and leave the room, right? And the neurophysiology of elation, like, oh, you'll finally, I did it, I did it, I did, like, it's just to say, I did it. I, like, you you can only say that to yourself with the voice of your mind so many times, right? Before you sound psychotic, yeah. right? Everything just dissipates. Experiences like that and every other is literally like trying to scoop up water in your hands, right? You can't hold on to it. So the, the Buddha was not denying that there are extraordinarily pleasant experiences in life. I mean, that's, that's undeniable. But however pleasant they are, they pass away. And then there are unpleasant experiences that are bound to come, right? It's just like if you, if you sit, no matter how comfortable you make your body, you know, this is a very comfortable chair. I can get, I could, you know, if given 10 minutes, I could get myself in precisely the right position here to be able to sit for as long as possible. But at a certain point, if I just don't move, I will begin to feel excruciating pain. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and you can try this. I mean, just just try to sit in the most comfortable position you can possibly find for four hours. Right at a certain point, you know, for most of us, well short of four hours, you will feel pains in your body that are amazing. Same right? thing like yeah. laying in the most comfortable bed. If yeah, yeah. For two days, yeah, you're you, gonna be like if you just sores. if you just don't move, if you just decide. I mean, the meditators do this where they vow not to move for some period of time uh, because it, it's incredibly instructive. I mean, what, you, what happens is you, you, you know, sit as comfortably as you want you feel and pain. then just don't move. <laughs> the pain comes or the itch, you know, the itching comes. And if you're not going to move and scratch or you're not going to move and relieve the, the pain that, that has just, you know, been born like a, a supernova in your knee, what you'll then experience is, and this is why it's instructive because you can experience incredibly intense pain that you know conceptually can't be uh, really problematic. I mean, you're not getting injured. You're just sitting in a chair, right? So whatever you can experience there, even if it, it is you know the worst pain you've ever felt, you know if you just move, you're going to be fine, yeah. right? So, so what happens is, I mean, there are people who will sit for 12 hours, right? I mean, and... Um, you experience, I mean, you can experience, I mean, it can feel like someone has just driven a nail into your knee or that you like just, you just broke a vertebrae, right? Like, I mean, just like <laughs> awful pain, right? But it becomes an amazing tool of concentration yeah. because it's impossible to ignore, right? So the, the, the problem with, with meditation for most people is that, or for everyone in the beginning, is that you have so little concentration that you're just you're, you're lost in thought can, perpetually. You're trying to follow the breath, or you're trying to pay attention to sounds, and you, you do that for a second or two, and then you, you start thinking about. It. I wonder, you know, how how that interview went, or right. you know, and then you notice your thinking, and you come back to the object of meditation. When you're feeling excruciating pain, it's very easy for attention to just dive into it, and you can become fantastically concentrated, and and concentration it just so happens, is intrinsically pleasurable. I mean, so much of what we like about, you know, yeah. flow states and or even just being lost in our work. I mean, these, these, these satisfying moments of just be, of having, of not being scattered at all and being totally focused on something, the pleasure component of that is really just the concentration. It doesn't yeah. matter what you're focused on. I mean, literally, if you can focus on the breath to the exclusion of everything else for five minutes... That becomes like a like a drug experience. Yeah. I mean, and that's you know, it's, again, that's also a temporary experience. I mean, concentration is one, another one of these things where you know you create the conditions for it, and those conditions are impermanent. And then you're mm-hmm. you're so the, the the fundamental insight to have is that it's possible to recognize that consciousness itself is free of its contents. Right. You know, and and that's that's really the purpose of meditation and that's why it's an antidote to the normal 
ordeal we experience of seeking satisfaction. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about a, a, a an experience that lasted minutes that you spent years, even even more than even decades, right. seeking. So many, I mean, so so many people are living their lives with that framework, acknowledged or not. We're living with this this sense of implicit in all of our efforts to become happy is this this prospect of finally arriving at right. something, and you never arrive, right? You can't you can't arrive until you can just drop your search, right? So it's like it's, it's the search it's the search for happiness that is making us uncomfortable. It is, it is the practice of being uncomfortable in each moment. Meditation is just the, a technique, and there, again, there are many techni- techniques, but at bottom, it's just relinquishing that, that act yeah. of, of, of indulging the illusion that you would be happy if only so if, if only if only this cup were full of hot coffee, right? Then I would, right. you know, you be know, happy. Then, yeah. Then I yeah. could relax. Right. I'm curious. When do you feel the most loved? When do I feel the most loved? Well, it's interesting because you know there is a kind of transactional notion of love that most of us grow up with, which again I've I've sort of lost. Really, since that time, that first MDMA trip, I mean, that, that, it could, because on some level, it's not about being loved, right? Like, I, I mean, I have, you know, I have. I'm very lucky. I'm surrounded by people who love, who in fact love me, and they 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 successfully communicate that, and that's nice, right? But right. but the real satisfaction is feeling love. Well, like again, that's a state of being. It's not predicated on what the other person's doing. You know, so like I, I, parents, um, I don't know, do you, do you have kids? No. Yeah, okay, okay, so this, this is an experience. You, okay, this, this will, this awaits you. you know, so much of parenting is not about getting the clear signal of love back, shining back at you from your kids, right? You can't wait for that to feel love for them, right? So, and so much of, so much of the experience of, of my feeling love for my kids happens when they're not especially happy, right? And so or if they're happy, they're certainly not shining it back on me. I mean, they might be annoyed at me, and that annoyance is just the most adorable thing in the world, right? It's like, like, like you know, I've got a five-year-old who's like, she, she can just, whatever is going on with her, I mean, she can be, she, she's a little tyrant. I mean, sometimes it's like I'm, I'm living in North Korea with Kim Jong-un, right? <laughs> like, so like, you know, if she, if she could have her way, you know, the whole cities would, would burn, but... She's so adorable, right? Yeah, and and yeah. so it's like, so like, and so that state of being of just taking delight in her full range of experience, right? That is, on some level, that's possible even with grown-ups who are unpleasant, right? Like you can just see, like, on some level, you could, if you look out at the world, you can see that you are surrounded by people who are suffering. You know, like, so like, I mean, this is sort of the compassion side of the coin rather than the love. Like, so, you know, love is, I view love as, as having a few different modes. I mean, one is what it's like just just to have a fundamental good intention for for other people and other sentient beings. And that that's the state of love. Um, so what does that feel like in the state of other people suffering? Well, that, that it feels like compassion. I mean, you mm-hmm. just want, you just wish that they were no longer suffering, and right. you, you wish you, there was something you could do to help. And what does it feel like in the state of other people's happiness? The Buddhist term for that is sympathetic joy. It's like you, you actually you take joy in their joy. It's like like the the feeling you feel like you know if you see someone win, you know, on American Idol or whatever. Right, like you see the, like yeah. yeah, it's like like that feeling. Like you know, you you can burst into tears of joy for that other person's joy, right? Now, this is a good corrective for where m- many people are at. I mean, just, just notice what it's like when someone cl- someone in your life experiences some great success, right? And it becomes potentially more uncomfortable if they, if they do it in a zone where you are, like, like well, imagine you're trying to become the decathlete, right? And your best friend is who's also trying to become a decathlete. He comes in first in that race, right? right? You know, it's like, just how good do you feel for him, right? Now, that really is the limit of friendship. If what you feel is envy rather than joy in his joy, right? 
you're not a good friend, mm. right? Like that, like so, like, like that's a boundary that you want to be able to blow past in yourself, right? So, and, and love is pre- real. Love is the ability to do that. I mean, real love, real love is the antithesis of envy in that moment. Mm. I mean, you, like, you, like you, you actually do want your friend to totally succeed, Even get what he wants. Even you. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's like, like, like that. Like that's the person you want to be. Like you want to be so stoked that your friend got what he wanted and was dreaming for that you are undiminished by it even when it's even when you guys are in the same lane mm-hmm. right that's what it would i mean and again that's that you know given the right or the wrong arrangement there that could be either harder or easier to do but um, that's i mean ethically and emotionally i think that's the goal to to be that right, kind of person right. where it's like you want people's dreams to be realized, mm-hmm. and when they're realized, that becomes yet more reason for you to be happy. True. You know? So, but when do you feel the most loved, personally? Wrestling with my five-year-old or ten-year-old daughter. I mean, that's just awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's just yeah, that's the greatest fun you know I ever have in any given day. I, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and, and so like I'm, I'm trying to teach them the, the rudiments of jiu-jitsu, which uh, has the at this point the the. The routine is kind of like the, the the Peter Sellers movies, where like you know Peter Sellers and Cato are constantly attacking each uh-huh. other, you know, uh, surprise <laughs> attacks. Uh, so that That's that goes fun. that goes down a lot. I mean, I, they're they're very girly girls, but they can unleash impressive violence on, on them. So <laughs> it's a it's a great counterpoint to that all the, the princess stuff and yeah, you know, the that's going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just it's that's just pink, cool. and then and then it's just like uh, Quentin Tarantino. It's like Kill Bill, you know. <laughs> What's the lesson you want to teach your kids the most? If you could teach them one lesson, what would it be? Well, a lot of what we've been talking about is relevant there. I mean, just what, just what are the, the real mechanics of, of suffering and happiness? The power of mindfulness is, is yeah. one. Um, but what gets emphasized even more at this stage, and I think is even it's kind of the coarser-grained corrective that, that improves people's lives the most is just to value honesty uh, as a, as a, the the most important foundation for ethics mm. and and relationships. I mean, so like when I when I was eighteen, I decided uh, it was this was the, the most consequential course I took in college was was a course on just it was really it was a graduate seminar on whether it was ever ethical to lie. And everyone came into this course, you know, assuming that you know lying was sometimes a problem, and obviously, you know, if you're lying all the time, you're you're a sociopath. But, but I would say everyone comes to, into that course thinking, well, there's certain situations where you have to lie. I mean, we we all know there are white lies, and you know, you, you want to spare people's feelings, and you, like, mm-hmm. you, so you got some amount of lying is just Normal. essential for doing yeah. business, right? Yeah. And. So the course became just a crucible for kind of pressure testing that assumption. And it was, t- it was taught by this, uh, I don't know if he still teaches it, but um, this wonderful professor at Stanford, uh, Ron Howard. And uh, I wrote a book, Lying, you know, a few years ago based on, on this course. But this course, since the day, since someday when I, when I was 18, oh. uh, I recognized that Basically, I never wanted to lie again wow. under any circumstances. The, li- the lying was that occupied some point on the continuum of violence where if I'm in a situation where I have to decide whether to punch someone in the face, well, then, okay, then lying is part of that right, you know, right, toolkit. Right. Uh, but it's really only uh, in emergencies where sure, you would even sure. consider it because it, it, it is synonymous with a total breakdown of of rational co- cooperation and, and collaboration with another person. You're, not, you're, yeah. you're no longer treating somebody like a, a a person who can be reasoned with or related to, you're treating them like some emergency that you mm-hmm. need to, to navigate around, right? And and that's true even for white lies. So so my book line gets into that and gets into wow. to white lies especially. So yeah. since you're 18, do you feel like you've lied at all? I have in a in a few cases kind of by accident, like, right. like, 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 like intentionally trying to lie. Yeah, like I, you say something and then you realize, okay, that wasn't quite true. Like, mm-hmm. like that, you know, I right. sort of got, there was some embellishment that, that came online or something just came out and then it just becomes too awkward right. to actually get, to massage the truth, you know, it's like, or it's, wow. it's just, it's just too pedantic or too, so, so sure. something. But like, I'm only aware of having told my 10 year old daughter one lie in her life. 
Right, like, like, so, like, what was that? Are you allowed to share? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a completely <laughs> ridiculous lie, but Santa um, Claus is real. Yeah, yeah. So, like, so they, uh, that, that's actually the most common question I get in response to this this paradigm. That, like, uh, what about Santa Claus? Yeah, so, tooth fairy or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and the answer there is that you, you know, Christmas can be. You, you don't have to lie to your kids to make Christmas fun, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 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 and notice you don't. You notice no one feels like you have to lie about Halloween to make it fun. Mm-hmm, right? Right. No one says no. Those, these witches are real, right? Like, like ghosts <laughs> are. Real. You don't have to do that. Like, fiction is fun enough uh-huh, for kids that, true, that true. Uh, you can make Santa Claus fun. So, what did you lie to her about? We were looking at a. We had done like some kind of Google search. I mean, she was she was maybe six, right? So she had no understanding. She didn't even understand the, the the lie that I told. But we had done a Google search on something that was producing like medieval woodcuts of like you know like it was something about the Middle Ages or knights or or you know something. Mm-hmm. And a woodcut came up that was just one of these. Happily, it was it was a woodcut, not a real image, but it was it was like, it was like one of these 15th century woodcuts of you know someone being decapitated, right, and during the Inquisition, right? You know, someone's head sure. is getting sawed off. I swipe by that, and and she says, "Daddy, what was that?" And so I, I pull it back, and I said, "Well, that that was a um, a very uh, ancient and uh, impractical form of surgery." She was not prepared for me to say, right, like, right. listen, you know, got killed. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. circumstances where other people cut other people's heads off, you know, uh, right. for, for bad reasons. Um, do you feel bad that you told the lie, or do you feel like that's a situation? Well, I, well, that's... well, I just didn't, I wasn't, I didn't think on my feet quickly mm-hmm. enough. Gotcha. Right? But, I mean, there, you know, I, there, there's a role for kind of radical honesty isn't incompatible with, with, with holding certain information. I mean, like, you don't have to tell kids everything about right. what's going right. on. Right. Like, by, you know, my daughters don't need to know exactly what ISIS was up to, and you right. know just how horrible all that was. It's like there's a time to tell them what you know what, sure. what's going on in the world. So, but the honest truth for my kids in those situations is the stuff you don't need to know. Yeah, of course. Right? Like, like we'll like, tell you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah you'll le- you'll learn that later. You know, what's, you know what's interesting about this? For the last six months, I've been thinking about honesty more than ever in my life. I feel like, you know, I've. Cheated, I cheated almost all my way through school yeah. on quizzes and tests and homework right. out of necessity because I couldn't comprehend the information. And no matter how many tutors I had all through school, it's like it was survival for me. Now I'm right. not saying I'm proud of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I stole things that I lied about from stores right. when I was a kid. You know, for two years, I had to steal every time I went to a store. Mostly candy bars or whatever it would be, smaller things, but still I stole things for couple of years. Right, right. Not proud of that. And would lie about it. And in relationships, intimate relationships, I remember wanting to tell the truth, but having these negative consequences when I would. And so I would start to have more white lies. Yeah. And I would never feel good about it. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. But I felt like it was more of a defense mechanism or a way to survive or whatever it may be. And I just started dating someone at the beginning of this year. And within the first few weeks of us dating, she said, I want you to promise me you'll always tell me the truth. And it was like I had a moment where I said, okay, uh, my condition from the past is most of my experiences, people can't handle the truth in intimate relationships. And there's consequences when you tell the truth. There's reactions. There's all this energy that's I don't want to feel. But I just said, okay, I'm going to say everything 100% true that happens from this moment out. Mm. And it's the most liberating thing yeah. to be able to say, okay, I'm telling you the truth about everything, no matter what. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out between us or whatever, or if you're going to react, but I'm going to be honest, and it just feels more peace. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the growth is in, I mean, the, the, it forces growth on you and other people sure. in surprising ways. I mean, so for instance, once you decide that you can't lie, then you find then then that suddenly becomes a mirror held up to yourself. Then you you find out what kind of person you are, right? You're like yeah. I, if I'm not if I'm not going to how integrity am yeah, I? Yes, yeah. like let's say like so. Why don't you want to go out with me, right? Like if I if, if I if I don't have recourse to a lie, right? <laughs> well, then I then I'm forced to both uh, in some on some level articulate who I am yeah. to the other person. Yeah, like you know you're too fat. Am I that kind of person, right? So like like that like you're forced to recognize just how deep that runs in yourself. Wow. If, if you're not going to lie, right? And then there's growth that happens in, in all of those areas. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, so much of uh, the notion of, uh, of white lies is, is a matter of avoiding awkwardness. Sure. And, it's, and it's, it's just not... Avoiding pain, right? Or... Yeah, yeah. But the, 
the, the thing that happens in relationship when you resolve not to lie is that, and, and then p- and people know this about you or discover this about you, is that then you become a refuge for people who actually want honest feedback. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they, they want to know, like they, then they know you that lie. you're not going to lie to them, right? So like, so, and then when you tell them that you love something they did, like if someone hands you their novel and you say you love it, they know you're not bullshitting them, right? right? They really matter. And, and, and I've had this, I've gone through this with so many people where it's like, they've shown me one thing and I said, okay, you, you, you want to know what I think about this? And, and I, I tell them something that they really felt like they didn't want to hear, sure. but they, you know, they recognized you know, on some level. I, I mean, on, on some, you can always frame it as, listen, I mean, this is just my opinion. I'm not, you know, omniscient. One like, person, like, like, yeah. yeah. it's like, so this is my, this is how your novel strikes me. Like, so it, it may have a different effect on other people, but here's what I feel very strongly about. And then you, you give them the download and, you know, certain people you'll discover actually didn't want Honest feedback, and they'll never they'll never give you <laughs> them a novel again. again, right? Which is fantastic, right? You don't want you, you don't want to hear from them uh, right. on that point. But the people who do want honest feedback, Range Rover Sport leads by example. Picture this: assertive on-road performance meets commanding all-terrain capability. That's the third-generation Range Rover Sport, which is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet. This vehicle redefines sporting luxury, offering an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Now available in sleek, new stealth pack, Carpathian gray exterior wrapped in satin protective film with black accents and black brake calipers. Inside the Range Rover Sport, advanced cabin technologies like active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. And let's not forget about the award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment system. Enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Wow, that's like a spa day while on the go. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. Like when you're trying to buy tickets for the best seat at your favorite team's big game or when you're hiring for your business and you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. With ZipRecruiter, you can find qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com greatness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I believe finding the right team member is one of the most important steps in setting up my company for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I am grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help when we want to grow the team fast. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Back, really appreciate it. And then when they give you the other novel they wrote and you love it, mm-hmm. they know it's not bullshit. Yeah. And, that, and that's, you know, you become incredibly valuable creatively. To that's good. In that way. Yeah. What is the question that you wish you had the answer to? That you were like, this is a certain fact about this answer. Well, the, the deepest one is, is related to, to what we were talking about earlier, just exactly how is consciousness integrated with the physics of things. Mm-hmm. How does consciousness arise? You know, what's, what's the answer to the, you know, what's called in philosophy the mind-body problem? That would be, you know, if there were, if there were one scientific mystery I w- would want to solve, that would be it. Mm. And we talked about your parents briefly before we started on camera. I'm curious, who was more influential in your life and what was the biggest lesson they taught you? Well, it was definitely my mom. My mom raised me essentially as a, a single mom. My dad left when I was two and a half. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a relationship with him until he died when I was 17, but it was a long distance one. He, he moved to New York. And so it was, you know, that was, uh, it was interesting. Like I, I didn't really see the implications of all of that until I became a dad. And like, I mean, I didn't just how, yeah. you know, aberrant that was to just leave it to it. Like I, you know, at a certain point I had a two and a half year old daughter and I thought, you know, what kind of guy would I need to be 
to leave now and move 3,000 miles away and have the level of involvement my dad had with me. So kind of my child's eye view of him, I didn't really see the problem. I, on some level, I probably thought I was the problem, right? But mm-hmm. like it was just, it was not, once I had a kid, I realized not only would, was that unthinkable for me, like I don't think, I mean, I know, of, I know people of you know, varying quality in my life. I don't, I don't think I know a dad who would do that. Right, like, yeah. like I mean, it was it was just very it was it was a very strange epiphany to be able to triangulate on, on him in that way. So it was definitely my mom. And what was the lesson the the greatest lesson she's taught you? That's it's hard to say. I mean, she's you know, we we've been best friends for for so much of my life. You know, I think my love of books and my love of writing and like that all of that got set by her i mean she was somebody who was a big reader and and just loved you know i grew up with you know like the television in the living room just had books it was like a wall of books all around it it was like a television just set in books and i remember you know from a very early age you know from you know age five i remember just like there are books everywhere Mm. and and she's a great sense of humor. So it's like, insofar as finding the, finding the funny in things, you know, that that's a corrective for, for yeah. almost everything. And that's, yeah. that's, that's where, cool. where she lives. You know. What's the greatest lesson your dad taught you in his absence? Um, or maybe that you well, learned. He, I remember he explicitly taught me a lesson. It's funny, this is... This is I don't know how old I was, but I remember he... Expli- you know, I mean, I think I, you know, I, I was always somewhat shy, I think. I mean, I definitely default to shyness. I'm mm-hmm. the more of an introvert than an extrovert. And I th- at one point, I think he must have noticed this about me, and he, he said, when you meet somebody, I, I want you to notice whether they go to shake your hand first or you go to shake their hand first. And I realized it wasn't just about that. He was like, like, that, like that way of thinking about just, just being conscious of how I was relating to people was something that had never occurred to me at that point in my life. Like, wow. I, like I just, uh, again, I might have been, you know, 10 years old or something, but like, like it, it realized like that was like a, a new piece of software th- that I, you know, I could have that, you know, I didn't even know was possible. Like, oh, like, oh, you can actually change this sort of thing about yourself. Like, you could, this, yeah, yeah. And this, this might matter. So, um, so yeah, I remember him, you know, yeah. consciously trying to impart that lesson. What's the lesson you wish he would have taught you? Oh, but the truth is, I'm not even sure. So he died when I was 17, so I didn't really have a fully adult relationship with him. Like I, I, and, and, and this was strangely, this, this, so everything we've been talking about in terms of like what I've realized in my life that's of value, you know, like you know, kind of the wisdom component of life, mm-hmm. and really most of my intellectual interests, all of that came online when I was 18. You know, he wow. died when I was 17. So like, there's a, an amazing bifurcation in my life between you know who I am and have become and who I was when when you know when I had a father, so I and I have no idea how, what he would have thought about any of this or what he would have been like to interact with you know, about wow. any of this. So like I, I don't know how wise he was or wasn't. You know it's very um, it's interesting. It's just like uh, again, I mean the le- the lesson there you know that he teaches me in my absence in, in his absence is that that you know. Everything's important. You don't know how long anything's going to last, right? You don't know when the last, when it will be the last time you are seeing a person, right? And, wow. and like, well, so what's the quality of that interaction? What haven't you said to the people you care right. about? You know, I mean, he was a very loving guy. I mean, it was not there was like a, a circumstance of zero conflict, but it was just, yeah, it's just it's it's odd to consider the life choices he made you mm-hmm. know, as a father. Because, uh, do you think you would be where you are today without his death as, you know, successful and pursuing the questions and the work and the, the mission that you have if he was at home with you when you were a child yeah, yeah, and supporting you, know, you the I don't whole know. time? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, death has been a very important part of my life. I mean, right. like my best friend died when, I was, when we were both 13. Wow. So, and that was a, like as, as far as an experience of death, like kind of the, the kind of the rude, you know, interruption in one's otherwise carefree life. It wasn't kind. Yeah, like, yeah, like that was like the fact that that was on the menu. You know, that your thirteen-year-old friend can just die and disappear. That was the biggest shock for, with respect to people you know, close to me who have died. You know, other people have died since, but 
and that, you know, so from when I was 13 on, I was somebody who's th- who had kind of big picture philosophical concerns about, you know, what does it all mean? And, you know, what's, you know, what is, what does it mean to die? And mm. what happens after death? And so that, like, I was, um, I mean, when I was 18, I had, you know, certain experiences that really answered some of those concerns. But the, I was thinking about issues of life and death from kind of 13 on and that, that's been super. Wow. And then, so when my dad died, when when I was seventeen, and he you know he had had cancer for the better part of two years before that, so I kind of saw that whole process. And so that was, yeah, I mean it was it's sobering, you know, mm. like you, you realize that the, it's it's good to um, get your head straight about things sooner rather than later. And, mm. and so I, I've always, uh, you know, it, it has. I'm I'm always amazed to meet people who don't think about death at all like, and do their best not to think about death and yeah. succeed, right? So whether it's just like they're just living their lives. It's just the goal is to have as much fun and have as much success and mm-hmm. just keep it all positive. And they seem to think that the, the alternative is to be made morbid by death, right? Or to become a kind of, you know, Woody Allen character who's just tor- neurotic and tortured by one's concern about right, death, right? right? Whereas there's there's a kind of a third channel to be on, which is it can actually be the primary source of wisdom. Like it, like it's massively clarifying to realize that you've only got a certain number of days, right? And 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 so like how just how do you want to live in each moment? Yeah. And um, how trivial do you want to be? You know, how long do you how long do you want to suffer over this thing that you know is not going to matter? Not all, but certainly not going to matter on your deathbed. It's not even going to matter like two moment. days from yeah, now, yeah, yeah. right? Like, like it's like, and yet now it's it's the thing that you're completely buried in. Obsessed right? with, yeah. yeah. What's the thing you're most proud of that you've done in your life that you wish your dad would have seen or know about? That's funny. So many of these words don't land on the right. Shelf, of, like, 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 like proud, yeah. proud doesn't. Really, so say, I'm very in touch with the fact that I don't know if you've heard my argument against free will, but like I, I don't actually feel personally responsible for uh, the good things that that have happened uh-huh. in my life that I've done. Gotcha. Like it's very salient to me that I didn't make myself mm-hmm. right. I can't take any deep responsibility for for the tools I have or don't have, that the level of effort I can exert or not the priorities I have or, you know, lose sight of and then find again. I mean, like all of this, when you become aware of what it's like to be you moment to moment, you see that everything is just happening, right? Including your your capacity for effort. The days you set an alarm and wake up early, the days you hit the snooze button once and the days you hit the snooze button five times, like like all of, all of that is part of the what's just happening mm-hmm. in the universe, right? And and it's not that you can't make choices, but again, the choices themselves are also just happening. And so when I look at what I've done that strikes me as good, that you know, if I, if given a chance I would have done that again, right? What I see is a lot of good luck, right? Like I'm lucky to have had, you right. know, the 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 capacity to do those things, you know, to end it or to have developed it. And I'm lucky to be born in, into a society where I don't have to worry about all the things that, you know, someone in Syria has to worry about right now. You know, I can't take any responsibility for the fact that I wasn't born in Syria, you know, yeah. in, in a civil war. So I just see, like, I just see that I have all of these opportunities that I've been able to make much of, but, you know, not every, and I can't, I can't account for why I haven't been able to make more of, mm. of them, right? So, like, mm. so, so I don't feel like the flip side of pride is, you know, shame or, mm. you know, self-reproach or some, you know, that some uh, a corollary negative state. I don't spend a lot of time on that either, you yeah. know? So, so yeah, I'm very, you know, things are, things, neutral, are yeah. things are going well, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the, the opportunities I have to, to, um, Deal with interesting ideas and meet interesting people, and, cool. and you know, add value to people's lives, and and be surrounded by people who are adding value to mine. That's great. So. This is a question I ask everyone at the end. It's called the three truths. Mm-hmm. So imagine it is your last day, uh, as many years away as you want it to be. You can be five hundred years old, hundred years old, whatever it is. Right. It's your last day. You got to go. It's time to die. 
you get to have the situation you want it to be. You've got your family surrounding you. It's the, the good way of dying, I guess, if we mm-hmm. want to call it that. And you've accomplished the things you want to accomplish. You've said the things you needed to say, written the books, people admire you, whatever you want, mm-hmm. it happened. But for whatever reason, you can only share three final things you know to be true about all of your existence, your life, and everything that you've created has to go with you, hypothetically. So no one has access to your podcast or your app or your books right. or right. anything like that. But you get to write down the piece of paper and share your three final truths, mm. the lessons you would leave behind to humanity. What would you say are your three truths? Well, we've covered that. We've actually been talking about them more or less this whole time. I mean, uh-huh. the, 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 the first one is that there is just consciousness and its contents. The implication that all of that has for well-being, kind of an admonition to look more deeply into that fact, mm-hmm. right? Because of all the good things that, that come and all the bad things that stop happening once right. you do that. Um, so that's one. That's one. So that's the that's the kind of the, the contemplative well-being side of it. Then there's the, uh, I guess I could put it in the form of a question. You know, why would you ever lie? And that's the ethical side of it. You know, that 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 sorts out one's relationships. Hmm. You know, once you seize the whole seize hold of that, all the people you shouldn't be spending time with kind of magically disappear, and wow. all the people who want to have an honest relationship with you are, are there and, and appreciate your honesty. That's great. The third one, I guess, I, uh, the third one would should address. Kind of more, you know, society. How do we organize society in a way that makes sense? Yeah, this this, does, this isn't poetry, but the the, uh, the <laughs> it's your last truth, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. This is this is, this is all the, the world the, knows you by. This is this is an ugly last truth, but it but it's nonetheless consequential. I, I think incentives are everything at the level of society. It's like what we want is to organize society in such a way where Ordinary, neurotic, selfish people are incentivized to behave better and better toward one another. I mean, that, that's how we build this thing to really be a kind of utopia. You can't be dependent on everyone becoming a saint or even especially wise. It ha- we, we need to incentivize the things we want to see happen that, in a way that takes out the friction. Yeah. And so much of what we see in the world that is creating needless human misery is a matter of incentives being badly aligned so that you have good people doing horrific things just because they're incentivized to, to live that way, you know, and they're not incentivized to do the alternative. So, yeah. yeah. Those are great so, truths. So I yeah. love it. You've got the Making Sense podcast. You've got the Waking Up app, which mm-hmm. everyone should get on their phone, the app store. Where else can we connect with you? What else can we do to support you in your mission? Well, those are the two main places. I mean, it's all samharris.org is my website. So if you, if you want to know more about what I'm doing or like a calendar of live events or anything like that, that's, that's always there. You're touring, you're speaking. Occasionally. I mean, there's not, yeah. not much on the calendar at the moment, but I've got an event in L.A. at the Wiltern on July 11th. I don't know when this is going to come out, but that, that's, that's happening then. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to keep the calendar a little clear at the moment, but... Um, yeah, everything everything gets uh, eventually announced on my website or on my podcast cool. yeah. or in the app. So you're on Instagram, Twitter, everywhere. I'm I'm, mo- I'm for better and worse. I'm on Twitter. I see uh, a lot of your tweets. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The, to- the tweets can be brutal. You got great uh, opinions. Yeah, yeah, say. yeah, yeah. So I'm I, I'm less on Twitter, but Twitter is the only one I really engage okay. with personally. I mean, we 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 put stuff out in a everywhere. perfunctory way everywhere Twitter else. is where you go on. Yeah, that's here. me on Twitter. Yeah. That's your opinion. Yeah, for, be- for better and worse. <laughs> I like it. So make sure you guys check out the Making Sense podcast. That's about once a week on average. Yeah, yeah a couple yeah. times. Uh, waking Up app, I highly recommend it. It's really powerful what you've done there, so congrats on that. Cool. I know it's been helping tens of thousands of people who've been using it already, if not more maybe right now, but um, congrats on that. I want to acknowledge you for a moment, Sam, for... Your wisdom and your intellect and your ability to dive into topics that are very controversial for people who have set beliefs that don't want to look deeper into another option or another way. 
and you continue to research, dive in, test, analyze ideas, thoughts, and beliefs that can hopefully end more uh, end suffering for a lot of people or support people in less suffering to live a happier life and bring more peace to their hearts. So I acknowledge you for yeah, well, your gift, even though you say that everything is, you know, you're lucky and situations, but you've decided to continue to make the choices to serve people in this way, and I acknowledge that. Cool, well, thank you, thank of you for course, listening. Of course, of yeah. course. The final question is, what's your definition of greatness? Well, I mean, there's really, there's really two. It's, um, I mean, that, you know, the conventional one of whatever your goal is to be able to meet that most efficiently, right? I mean, so there's, there's greatness in so many areas of our lives. But, I mean, beauty is an elegance as variables are, we recognize greatness when, when those are also maximized, right? So it's like it's a sort of, it's a, how you arrive at something matters as well. It's, not, it's just not that you arrive. Real greatness is a matter of meeting worthy goals that has the well-being and ethical component to it uh, as elegantly as possible. Mm, there you go. Sam Harris, thanks, man. Yeah, Appreciate yeah. it. Pleasure. Appreciate yeah. it, man. There you have it, my friend. I hope you enjoyed this one. Let me know if you did. Tag me on Instagram, at Lewis Howes. The link for this is lewishouse.com slash 824. You can share it out for part two, and you can listen to part one at lewishouse.com slash 823 to listen to, to uh, part one as well. Powerful two-part section. I wanted to keep going because it was just mind-blowing for me, and hopefully I'll get Sam back on in the future. But share this with a friend today. You can text a friend. You can put it in a WhatsApp group chat. You can put it on your social media account. Be the hero in someone's life by spreading the message of greatness. Just send it to a few friends or post it on social media. It really means the world to me. And a lot of people ask me, how can I best support you, Lewis? The best way you can support me is spreading this message. It's free and it helps so many people transform their life, overcome any struggles or pain or insecurities that they have by getting the right information from the best people in the world. So just share with a few friends. And that's an amazing way you can support me and also support someone else in your life today. And Mahatma Gandhi said, I will not let anyone walk through my mind with their dirty feet. You know, we have so many thoughts every single day. Don't let a thought that is dirty, that is nasty, that is controversial, that is harmful to walk around in your mind. Eliminate this thought. Remove it. Find peace within your own mind and when you do that you'll have peace in your body and in your life it starts with the thoughts in your mind and gandhi said i will not let anyone walk through my mind with their dirty feet don't let anyone do that you are in control of what you think about you are amazing you are loved you are one of a kind and as always you know what time it is it's time to go out there and do something great